All right, we are back. Political theory and um other stuff. Twitter, we're at polytheorypod. Our email is and.um.otherstuff at gmail.com. And if you're feeling super generous, you can hit us up on Patreon. Uh, Patreon backslash polytheory and um, other stuff. We are doing more of Michael Heinrich's An Introduction to Three Volumes of Karl Marx's Capital. We're on Chapter 2, The Object of Critique in the Critique of Political Economy. And hopefully Paul is going to start us off here. All right. It's always good to uh, be able to, to reach people's hopes. Okay. Uh, in Capital, Mark examines the capitalist mode of production. The question, however, is in what manner capitalism is the object of study. In the text, there are abstract theoretical, inqu- theoretical inquiries into money and capital, as well as historical passages, such as those dealing with the development of capitalist relations in England. Is capital first and foremost concerned with the main features of the history of capitalist development, or with a particular phase of capitalism? Or is the point rather an abstract theoretical depiction of the mode of operation of capitalism? Or, to raise the question more generally, how do history and theoretical depiction relate to each other within the critique of political economy? A further question concerns the relationship between Marx's depiction of the capitalist mode of production and bourgeois economic theory. Is Marx presenting merely just another theory of the mode of operation of capitalism? Does the critique and the critique of political economy consist solely of previously existing theories being proven wrong in certain places so that Marx may present a better theory? Or does critique make a more comprehensive claim? To formulate things more generally, what does critique mean within the framework of the critique of political economy? Uh, section 2.1. Uh, Ingalls had already suggested a historical manner of reading Marx's account. In a review of the early writing, A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy of 1859, he wrote that the logical depiction of categories presented by Marx, uh, begin parentheses, logical here, meaning conceptual, theoretical, and parentheses, is indeed nothing but the historical method, only stripped of the historical form and of interfering contingencies. And Karl Kotsky, who published a popular outline of the first volume of Capital in 1887, wrote that Capital is an essentially historical work. Then, at the beginning of the 20th century, it became common knowledge among the leading figures of the workers' movement that capitalism had entered a new phase of development, that of imperialism. Marx's capital was understood as an analysis of competitive capitalism, a phase of capitalist development preceding imperialism. Marx's research, therefore, now had to be continued by analyzing the next historical phase of capitalism, imperialism. Hilferding, 1910, Luxembourg, 1913, and Lenin, 1917, took up this task in various ways. One also frequently hears from the contemporary economists insofar as they don't reject Marx's analysis entirely. That is, that it is at best valid for 19th century, but in the 20th century, economic conditions have supposedly undergone such extensive change that Marx's theory is of no use. Uh, which is why no one hears, <clears throat> which is why one hears so little of it in most economics departments. Such historicizing ways of reading Marx, which are also typical of many introductions to Marx's capital, 
are at the very least opposed to Marx's understanding, own understanding of his work. In the foreword of the first volume, Marx writes the following concerning the object of his research. Uh, just before I read this, uh, having been somebody who's read very little of Marx, I can say that uh, I personally have seen a lot of his concepts uh, very applicable to um, modern life and modern capitalism. Or contemporary life. Or contemporary, contemporary life. life. Yeah, yeah, good call, good call. Uh, so beginning uh, the quote from Marx's foreword. What I have to examine in this work is the capitalist mode of production and the relations of production and forms of intercourse that correspond to it. Until now, their locus classicus. What is that? What is that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm guessing it is uh, Latin and something about it like... It sounds like something you don't want to step on. Yeah, I'm guessing it might mean something like main focus. Locus classicus, or it's like a Roman Empire a re- emperor. I'm not sure. Emperor locus classic. Oh, just it means to be the best known or most authoritative on a particular subject. <laughs> oh so, wow! Until now, their locus classicus has been England. That is the reason okay. why England is used as the main illustration of the theoretical developments I make. Uh, intrinsically, it is not a question of the higher or lower degree of development of the social antagonisms that spring from the natural laws of capitalist production. It is a question of these laws themselves, of these tendencies winning their way through and working themselves with iron necessity. And that is, that's a great example of why I think everything um, is still so applicable, because the motivations, the tactics, um, the placing, you know, prop profit, surplus value, those things uh, over the humanity of the subjects, I think, um, is still unbelievably relevant, you know. Um, uh, So here Marx explicitly states that he is concerned neither with the history of capitalism nor with a specific historical phase of capitalism, but rather with a theoretical analysis of capitalism. Examined are the essential determinants of capitalism, those elements which must remain the same regardless of all historical variations, so that we may speak of capitalism as such. What is portrayed is therefore not a historically or geographically specific capitalism, but rather, as Marx says at the end of the third volume of Capital, we are only out to present the internal organization of the capitalist mode of production, its ideal average, as it were. With this statement, Marx merely formulates the claim he makes for his account. Whether this claim is actually redeemed, whether Marx actually manages to portray the capitalist mode of production in its ideal average, is something to be addressed when we deal with the details of his account. The statements cited above clarify the level of abstraction of Marx's accounts. Account. If the analysis is carried out at the level of the ideal average of the capitalist mode of production, then it actually provides the categories that must underlie any research into the history of capitalism or a particular phase. The notion that one must know history in order to understand the present has a certain justification when applied to the history of events but not for the structural history of society. Rather, the opposite is the case. To examine the constitution of a particular social and economic structure, one has to be already familiar with the completed structure. Only then will one know what to look for in history. Marx formulated his idea with the help of a metaphor. This is a ball and metaphor, by the way. Uh, The anatomy of a man is a key to the anatomy of the ape. On the other hand, indications of higher forms in the lower species of animals can only be understood when the higher forms themselves are already known. Uh, and I like that, and it, it really kind of made me think about uh, history, and that what it's important to for us is kind of understanding 
um, you know, giving us a better understanding of modern times um, and that you can live in modern times without knowing history, but you just might not be as aware of it. Um, for this reason, the historical passages in Capital come after the theoretical depictions of the corresponding categories and not before. Thus, the well-known chapter about the so-called primitive accumulation, which concerns the emergence of the free wage laborer has a precondition of the capital relationship, is placed not at the beginning, but at the end of the first volume of Capital. The historical passages complement the theoretical account, but they don't constitute the theoretical account, which is obviously a really important distinction. Uh, although Capital is first and foremost a theoretical work, which analyzes a fully developed capitalism, and not a historical work concerned with the development of capitalism, also very, very uh, important distinctions, the depiction is not ahistorical in the sense that contemporary economics to a large extent is which also to me makes sense. Uh, economics assumes there is a general problem of economic activity that exists in every society. Production must occur, scarce means have to be distributed, and so forth. This problem, which is assumed to remain constant throughout all historical phases, is then examined using essentially the same categories. Thus, some economists view the hand axe of the Neanderthal as a sort of capital which is uh, no offense to Neanderthals, but a fairly Neanderthal take on that. Uh, <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Marx, on the other hand, realizes that capitalism is a particular historical mode of production, which is fundamentally different from other modes of production, such as ancient slaveholding societies or the feudalism of the Middle Ages. In this respect, every one of those specific modes of production contains specific relationships that have to be described with categories that only retain their validity with regard to these modes of production. In this sense, the categories that describe the capitalist mode of production are historical and in no way transhistorical categories. They are valid only for the historical phase in which capitalism is the dominant mode of production. So true. Yeah, and very like something I encounter uh, in my personal life quite a bit, um, which is people pretending that every time humans have interacted in commerce, that it is capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating, especially um, when generally those are people who are very pro-capitalism, just not even having a concept of what they're uh, uh, what they're endorsing. You know, right? A little, yeah, a little frustrating. Okay, so uh, this is two point two theory and critique. Within worldview Marxism, Marx was regarded as the great economist of the workers' movement who had developed a, quote, Marxist political economy that one could oppose to, quote, bourgeois economy, that is. The schools of economics that regarded capitalism positively, Marx had supposedly taken over the labor theory of value of Adam Smith, 1723 to 1790. And David Ricardo, 1772 to 1823, the most important representatives of so-called classical political economy. According to the labor theory of value, the value of commodities was determined by the labor time necessary for their production. As distinct from the classical political economists, Marx had allegedly developed a theory of ex exploitation of labor power and the crisis prone nature of capitalism. According to this view, there are no fundamental 
categorical differences between Marx's political economy and classical economy, only differences concerning the conclusions of both theories. And that's something that, um, you know, even though I hadn't read much Marx, I had uh, until recently kind of um, thought that was what was going on. And, um, and Heinrich makes it pretty clear here that that's not what the deal is. Right. Yeah. It's no, this Heinrich has cleared so many things up for me, to be honest, uh, which is why I think, you know, it's always good not to just completely trust yourself in any learning situation, you know? Well, and, and, and always continue, um, you know, looking for, for new concepts, new, new, uh, input, uh, even if you think you're, uh, kind of informed about something. No, for um, sure. For sure. This is basically also the view of contemporary economics in terms of the substance of his theory. Marx is viewed as a representative of the classical school who draws different conclusions than Smith and Ricardo. And since classical political economy is viewed as outmoded by contemporary economics, modern theory has bid farewell to the determination of value by labor. A contemporary... Sorry to interrupt. I wonder how long they'll be able to do that. Uh, Keep in mind, it's May of 2021. And uh, I think uh, with current economic situations, they might have to reassess um, where the value in this system comes from. Because they sure seem real terrified they can't find workers if that's not where that value is coming from. Well, yeah. Yeah. I'm not even sure if they they care about value. You know, I think um, they're more That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Uh, modern uh, theory has bid farewell to the the determination of of value by labor. A contemporary economist, or yeah, economist doesn't think he has to seriously concern himself with Marx. However, as the subtitle of Capital makes clear, Marx Marx's intent was not to provide an alternative political economy, but a critique of political economy. Today, a new scientific approach also contains a critique of previous theories, if for no other reason than to justify its own existence. But Marx was concerned with far more than such a critique. He wanted not only to critique particular theories, he does that in Capital. His critique was aimed rather at the entirety of political economy. He wanted to criticize the categorical presuppositions of an entire branch of knowledge. Marx made clear the comprehensive character of this critique in a letter he wrote to uh, Frendel, or what is this? Uh, I'm guessing Ferdinand LaSalle. Ferdinand LaSalle, I've heard that name before, at the end of the 1850s. The work I am presently concerned with is a critique of economic categories, or if you like, a critical expose of the system of the bourgeois economy. It is at once an expose and by the same token, a critique of the system. Uh, This critique of categories begins with the most abstract category of political economy, that of value. Marx concedes that political economy has grasped a a content, in quotes, concealed, uh, concealed in value and its magnitude. The connection between labor and value. But political economy has never once asked the question why this content has assumed that uh, particular form. 
That is why labor is expressed in value and why the measurement of labor by its duration is expressed in the magnitude of the value of the product. Marx is not predominantly criticizing the conclusions of political economy, economy, but rather the manner in which it poses questions, meaning the distinction between that which political economy aims to explain and that which it accepted as so self-evident that it doesn't need to be explained at all, such as the commodity form of the product of labor. Thus did Adam Smith, the progenitor of classical economy, proceed on the assumption that humans, as distinct from animals, had a propensity to truck, barter, and exchange. Uh, 1776, Smith, 25, I didn't need to say that. Thus, it would be a general human trait to, uh, to relate to all things as commodities. Within political economy... Social relationships, such as exchange and commodity production, are naturalized and refined. That is, social relationships are conceived of... Uh, time, I think that word might be reified, but I don't know what Oh, you're means. right. Yeah, yes. Yeah, reified. Um, it just means like um, solidified or like clarified kind of, but you can look it up, but I think that's oh, cool. what it means. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I'll, you sounded confident in that. I'm going to go with it. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Well, you know, you know how that goes. Sometimes you think you know what something means, and it totally does not mean that. Yeah, that's um, more but, of a me trait, though. But uh, no, I, I, I feel like I do that too. But I guess I'll look it up. Exactly to make something more concrete. Okay. Hell yeah. That is social, and the I think the only reason why I know that is because fucking Vosh was using that word, but he was using it wrong, and so it just bugged <laughs> the shit out of me for a while. All right. Um, God, but his voice probably made it sound so right. <laughs> Yes, exactly. That is, uh, social relationships are uh, conceived of as quasi-natural conditions, ultimately as the characteristics of things. According to this conception, conception, things do not first obtain an exchange value on the basis of a practical societal structure, but rather in and of themselves. Through such a naturalization of social relationships, it appears as if things have the properties and autonomy of subjects. And uh, just, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why when you're reading Capital, Marx um, personifies a lot of these, these, uh, these objects and gives them agency because that's how the economists unintentionally are treating them. For sure. And and the connections, you know, constantly metabolizing and things of that nature. That makes a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marx characterizes such conditions as a, an absurdity and speaks of a spectral objectivity or uh, occult quality. What he means in each case will become clear in the following p- chapters. In worldview Marxism, as well as in bourgeois critiques of Marx, such con- conceptions were usually glossed over and were viewed merely as stylistic particularities. However, with these with these descriptions, Marx took aim at a central issue of the critique of, po- of political economy, namely that the naturalization and reification of social relationships is in no way the result of a mistake, but individual ec- uh, economists 
by individual economists, but rather the result of an image of reality that develops independently as a result of the everyday practice of the members of bourgeois society. At the end of the third volume of Capital, Marx can therefore establish that people in bourgeois society inhibit, quote, the bewitched, distorted, and upside-down world, uh, and that this, quote, religion of everyday life is not only the basis of everyday consciousness, but also constitutes the background for the categories of political economy. And it's just such a good point. Um, you know, so much, and it, a lot of this is obviously could be attributed to my lack of knowledge. But when I hear people talk about the defense of capitalism, especially just like, you know, people who are just mildly interested in it or whatever, all of their viewpoints and stuff feel so dogmatic. Um, which just so ties into that religion of everyday life. It's like, we believe in it. It's going to work. I can't explain it to you, but just trust the process, you know, mm -hmm, that kind mm -hmm. of shit. And I think in a lot of ways, they don't even think that it's not working right now. That's a very good point. It's <laughs> a very good point. People will be like, well, have you heard how good the stock market's doing? Or they'll be like, look at our GDP. It's like, yeah, but look at all these other things. Like, oh, you know, How about so. look at your savings? Right, or exactly. your ability. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, I mean, usually when, when uh, I hear people talking about it, it's not, they're not defending or they're not saying like it's not working. They're saying that it's in, it is working and that's why we need to leave it alone. And it's like, dude, I don't think you're, you're looking at the same world I am. Right. <laughs> it feels like I'm taking crazy pills. Yeah. The question was posed above as to what, quote, critique means within the context of the critique of political economy. We are now able to provide a tentative answer. Critique aims to break down the theoretical field, meaning the self-evident views and spontaneously arising notions to which the categories of political economy owe their apparent plausibility, the absurdity, in quotes, of political economy should be made clear. Here, the critique of perception, the question as to how perception is possible, meets the analysis of the capitalist relations of production. Neither is possible without the other. Um, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at, is just that people aren't even like uh, thinking about the system Right. enough to understand or see its its short shortcomings i think is what that's getting at anyhow yes. um so uh however marx's intent with capital was not simply to write a critique of bourgeois science and bourgeois consciousness but also for uh to formulate a critique of bourgeois social relations in a letter he described his work not very modestly <laughs> as without question the most terrible missile that <laughs> that has yet been hurled at <laughs> the heads of the bourgeois <laughs> um uh, land landowners included um that's so tight yeah yeah so, so tight for, for this purpose marx intent marx's intent was to point out the human and social costs connected with capitalist development. He attempts to prove that within the capitalist uh, system, all methods for raising the social productivity of labor are put into effect at the cost of the individual worker, that all means for the development of production undergo a, 
and in inversion so that they become means of domination and exploitation of the producers. Or, as he put it in another passage, capitalist production therefore only develops techniques that and the degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original uh, sources of all wealth, the soil, and, and the worker. Marx does not intend... Just a powerful quote, man. It's just a yeah, that is. Quote. Yeah, it is a powerful quote. Marx does not intend to make a moral critique which, with such comments, uh, which is important. You know, it's really important to, to, to remember that, that although it's easy for us to slip into to moralizing, or Marx is often not moralizing. You know, and often we take little pot shots and, and snippets and what, but we're not... I'm not ever aimed at like an individual participating in the capitalist society, you know? It's just the system in general. It seems like we could make a system that would be more livable for its its inhabitants, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Marx does not intend to make a moral critique with such comments. Marx does not accuse capitalism or even individual capitalists of violation or violating some eternal norms of justice he aims rather to state a matter of fact that there is an imminent destructive potential of capitalism that is active activated time and time again see chapters five, uh, five and nine on the basis of its manner of functioning capitalism must always uh con- contr- what is this paul Contravene? Contravene the elementary interests of laborers. Within capitalism, these elementary interests can only be protected in a uh, temporary and limited way. But the situation can only be fundamentally altered when capitalism is abolished. Marx does not advance a moral right to an unscathed existence or something similar against the impositions of capitalism. Instead, he hopes that with the growing insight into this destructive nature of capitalist of the capitalist system, which can be established without recourse to morality, the working class will take up the the struggle against this system, not on the basis of morality, but rather on the basis of of its own interest. Not, however, on the basis of an interest of a better situation within capitalism, but rather on the basis of an interest in a good and secure life, which can can only be realized by transcending capitalism. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Um, <clears throat> perfect. This next chapter, uh, I will tell you, made me feel so much more confident. Uh, or the, the next section, you mean? The next section, yeah. And at least... Um, feeling not great when people bring up dialectics (laughs) so uh this section is 2.3 dialectics dialectics a marxist rosetta stone Uh, whenever marxist theory is spoken of eventually the catchword dialectics or dialectical development dialectical method dialectical portrayal pops up and in most cases there is no explanation of what is exactly meant by this word Most notably, in Marxist political parties, opponents in an argument frequently accuse each other of having an undialectical conception of whatever matter is being debated. 
Also, today in Marxist circles, people speak of something standing in a dialectical relationship to another thing, which is supposed to clarify uh, everything. <laughs> and sometimes, whenever one makes a critical inquiry, one is answered with the know-it-all admonishment that one has to see things dialectically in this situation. One shouldn't allow oneself to be intimidated, but should be rather constantly annoyed the know-it-all by asking what exactly is understood by the term dialectics, and what the dialectical view looks like. More often than not, the grandiose rhetoric about dialectics is reducible to the simple fact that everything is dependent upon everything else and is in a state of interaction, and that it's all rather complicated, which is true in most cases, but doesn't really say anything. If dialectics is spoken of in a less superficial sense, then one can make a rough distinction between two ways of using this term. In one sense, dialectics is considered to be, according to Engels' text, anti-during, uh, anti-during, not like anti, like anti, whatever, uh, the science of the general laws of motion and development of nature, human society, and thought. According to this conception, dialectical development does not proceed uniformly and in a linear matter manner, but is rather a movement in contradictions. Of particular importance for this movement are the change of quantity into quality and the negation of the negation. Perfect. Uh, whereas Engels was clear that with such general statements, nothing is understood about individual processes. This was anything but clear within the framework of worldview Marxism. Dialectics, understood as the general science of development, was often viewed as a sort of Rosetta Stone with which everything could be explained. The second way in which dialectics is spoken of relates to the form of depiction in the critique of political economy. Marx speaks on various occasions of his dialectical method, and in doing so also praises Hegel's achievements. Dialectics played a central role in Hegel's philosophy. However, Marx alleges that Hegel mystified dialectics and that his dialectic is therefore not the same as Hegel's. This method gains importance with the dialectical presentation of categories. This means that in the course of the presentation, the individual categories are unfolded from one another. They are not simply presented in succession or alongside each other, uh, which I think is really clear if you read Marx that that is very often how he styles um, his arguments. I haven't read enough to say it's always, but uh, it's clear that that is what he's doing. Um, <clears throat> Uh, they are not simply presented in succession or alongside each other. Rather, their interrelationship, how one category necessitates the existence of another, is made clear. The structure of the depiction is therefore not a di didactic question for Marx, but has a decisive substantive meaning. However, this dialectical portrayal is in no way the result of the application of a ready-made dialectical method to the content of political economy. Ferdinand LaSalle intended such an application, which caused Marx to express the following in a letter to Engels. He will discover to his cost that it is one thing for a critique to take a science to the point at which it admits of a dialectical presentation, and quite another to apply an abstract, ready-made system of logic to vague presentiments of just such a system. That's a, a, a pretty ballin' quote, and I think could probably be expanded to a lot of modes of research and thought so much that you probably can't develop a dialectic for something unless you understand the thing already. You can't make like a template. Tem yeah, a dialectic template to apply to other things you'd call. The precondition of a dialectical portrayal is not the application of a method a widespread conception in worldview Marxism, but rather the categorical critique discussed in the previous section. 
And such a categorical critique presumes an exact and detailed familiarity and engagement with the substance of a field of knowledge to which the categories refer. An exact discussion of Marx's dialectical presentation is therefore only possible if one already knows something about the categories being portrayed. One cannot talk about the dialectical character of Marx's account or even the relationship between Marx's dialectic and Hegel's before one has engaged with Marx's account itself. Do you hear that, Jordan Peterson? Do you hear that? <laughs> uh, the frequent characterization of Marx's account as advancing from the abstract to the concrete like some reification there, uh, mm -hmm. also says very little to those who are first beginning to read Marx's Capital. Hello. Uh, above all else, the actual structure of the presentation in Capital is considerably more complex than this formula, which stems from the introduction of 1857, would lead one to believe. <clears throat> Other than in the forward and afterward, Marx speaks very seldom of dialectics in Capital. He practices a dialectical portrayal, but without demanding from his readers that they deal with the subject of dialectics before reading Capital. Only in hindsight can one say what is dialectical about Marx's account. For that reason, the present work does not begin with a section on dialectics. That makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. So that makes far, sense to me. What I'm realizing as, as we're reading this is that uh, Maurice, uh, Maurice Cornforth, the dude that wrote something, something in the dialectical method, I'm thinking now was a worldview Marxist okay. because, um, because the way that he wrote that, and I did get some good things out of that, but uh, I, I think the way that he wrote that was kind of um, laying dialectics out as like a, a template that if applied properly can explain like everything. And, okay. it, and and it sounds to me like that's what um that's what uh, Heinrich is is saying. Some people thought and uh, and dis and, yeah and is incorrect. Good to know. Well, awesome. Well, next week we're gonna crack into chapter three, presumably. Yep. And as always, thanks for learning with us, and have a great day. <laughs>